About 400,000 people searched for food pantries, like I did, food pantries near me uh, in 2013 across the country. That number was 2.6 million last year in 2018. And you're kidding me. That's, that is wow. a, if you're keeping playing along at home, that's a 544% increase. And 80% of that 2.6 million, basically 2.1 million uh, searches were done from smartphones. So that's not... That's incredible. That's not computers. That's 80% of the f- people seeking help from food assistance on Google, trying to find it on Google, was done from a smart device. Welcome back to Snapshot Atlanta. I'm your host, Denor Sapolia. In this week's episode, I talked to Jack Griffin, founder and CEO of Food Finder, a safe, secure, and award-winning mobile and web app that gives food insecure children and their families a way to find free food assistance programs quickly. So this started with a new story about a family, right? It was a family of, uh, it was a father and a son and a daughter. And they were living in a pickup truck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And and the reason they were living in a pickup truck is because the the medical bills of their late mother had essentially bankrupted them. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was a new story you saw when you were, uh, if I'm correct, 15 years old. Yes. And so you saw this, uh, and and you what what was your what was your initial reaction what was going through your head at that point you know i was sort of just kind of dumbfounded um because really the kids in the story were um just a year or two younger than me um mm-hmm. they were really similar in age and i really just couldn't help how especially because the story also talked about how they really don't want that aspect of their lives to be known to their friends so they really just act like normal kids and you know of course they just look like normal kids there's nothing different about them um except really their financial circumstance so then i realized that you know how many of the kids or my friends that i walk past you know in the halls of my you know school every day uh how many might be even facing with you know with similar situations and i realized just not how you know dire you know these straits really were in terms of how they had to get by on what little they had, but also the shame and the stigma that's attached to poverty here in America um, and how that also did a lot of, a a lot of damage to them. So that was really, I was really glad that I saw it so that I could just know something and then subsequently do something about it. But it was just shocking because I, it's really one of those things to where if you're not directly affected by it, it just doesn't cross your mind. Yeah, so, you, you can live your whole life without even yeah, considering so, that. Sort of in that blissful ignorance. And that was sort of a rude awakening, but I'm really glad that at least I could see it and then try and do my part to help make that better. Yeah, and, and when I when I read about the story, I mean, you know, it's not it's not just, just that they were living in a pickup truck. I mean, you know, it really one of the details about how how would that even work? You know, they were getting ready in what public libraries and gas yeah. stations yeah like, they, they obviously you know living out of a truck it means you don't have your own bathroom so right. in order to get dressed and get ready for even just a normal school day that means you have to rely on public facilities like libraries and gas stations and other buildings like that so it's just one of those things where it's a really striking 
detail that again it's just in terms of if you're living that life 24 7 things can be very different than what you might imagine if you can if you're not in it yourself and so you were really taken aback and how did you decide to act moving forward after you'd um after you'd heard of, of this story yeah so my really initial reaction was pretty par for the course you know just saying that you know uh, well where can i volunteer is there a uh, shelter or a food pantry or a soup kitchen where I can either donate food to so that people in need can get this help? Or can I just volunteer my time over the weekend or over summer break or things like that? Um, so really nothing, not like the light bulb went off immediately for to start. <laughs> let's start a company. Um, yeah, I was about to say like, oh, I want to. But it's it, it just really knew I, I knew I had to do something. Mm-hmm. But then that. Of course, the, you know, the the final part of the origin story is that once I tried to find a place to volunteer at, at that tra- at those traditional service locations um, is when I encountered the difficulty of ser- seeking social assistance online. You couldn't even find like like a shelter. Or- no, it was um, you know fifteen twenty minutes into searching on Google, you know food pantry Gwinnett County, you know trying all these different really vague generic search terms that I thought would work. Um, but then I realized that Google is a lot better at pointing you to restaurants than it yeah, is for food, for food pantries, um, because the you know the organizations uh, where you can really get help on the ground, um, your, your your local programs and pantries aren't SEO wizards. Um, <laughs> they're not really right. you know they're volunteer run. The tech savviness is on the limited side. Um, so things just fall by the wayside and, you know, help could be available, but you wouldn't know it searching online. So I was really frustrated that I was having this difficulty, but then once I asked myself, you know, how does this, you know, isn't this, you know, this is what happens to people who seek, you know, the same search terms I would use to volunteer are the same ones you'd use to try and find help if you needed it yourself. Mm-hmm. And that was the, the sort of the aha moment of maybe a, a more specific thing I could really solve for. Okay, so, so then you decided to, to take a very interesting approach because it's so rare in, in the nonprofit world, is that you, you decided to make a technological solution. You know, why didn't you just start let's say Jack's food pantry? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, of course, technology, you know, people our age, it's really for most of our lives, it's what we've known. Um, and what definitely I don't want to be the case is to people think, you know, it wasn't the case for me where I was like, I want to build an app. What should I build it for? Um, uh-huh. cause it's, you know, especially if you're in the entrepreneurial world, you know, it's never good to have a solution before you have a problem you want to solve. Um, so of course I experienced the problem, by using technology Mm -hmm. um but that was just sort of a first step and i really want to see if that was you know is that i didn't know it was customer discovery at the time but that's essentially what i did we're trying to learn more about what really is the reality facing people in need is this a common problem is this a solution that's needed and then what i realized uh to answer your question more directly is that you know the limiting factor in why you know tens of millions of americans are still food insecure and struggle with hunger is not that there is not enough food out mm-hmm. there. You know, that's not the bottleneck, if you will. It's, um, you know, the demand is there for people who need this help and the supply is there um, for the 
$11 billion that are spent every year on food banking alone in America. It's just that so much effort had been focused on the supply side of getting that food available in the first place Mm -hmm. is that it was really the responsibility of marketing that and making sure they could reach the people who need it was offshore to the smallest, uh, most local, least tech savvy part of the supply chain. And that's when I when I when I had that better understanding of the landscape, I realized that something that would become Food Finder would be really needed. That that role of the connector had not yet taken root in the nonprofit and and, and in the fight against hunger, as it had for things like uh, hospitality for Airbnb and TripAdvisor or for restaurants like Yelp. And, and you bring up a great point. So th- there's this explosion of technological solutions in, in for-profit companies and just the you know for-profit mm-hmm. world in general. Why do you think that there isn't that same level of technological innovation in the nonprofit world? Yeah, that's um, it's, uh, really the, uh, the billion-dollar question <laughs> is because the, the way I see it is that technology has changed you know, really so many aspects of our lives. But it goes the least utilized in the nonprofit space where it unequivocally has the greatest potential to meaningfully change people's lives for the better. Um, so I think it's on one hand, it's just uh, you know, just an, you know, a lack of incentive um, for people going after technology. You know, you, you see, you know, billion dollar valuations and unicorns if you're really in the startup world and people just chasing dollar signs and that doesn't. That leads to more of the, you know, money being the goal rather than the fuel to achieve a goal. Um, And also, I think it's just sort of a natural, um, I guess, lag time is because a lot, especially for larger nonprofits um, like the American Cancer Society, you know, big food banks and Feeding America are really, I think I'd estimate like a 10 year sort of delay, which where you know, now, especially in logistics and supply chain, people are really like, they want data, they want analysis from the provider side. Um, but when it comes to direct to the consumer or direct to the people who are in need of the help that is being offered by these nonprofits, that's what's taken a really um, long time and has not really been developed as nearly as robustly as it should be. So let's go back to you called it the origin story, and that, that's kind of cool. So let, let's <laughs> let, let's let's finish that off. So you were still 15 at this time, and you you noticed that you you had stumbled into customer discovery, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and noticed this gap, this logistical gap, if I can call it that. You know, there was no connector between uh, supplier and and the demander, I should say. And so you decided to make a website. And, and was it originally called Food Finder? What was the original? It was. Name? It was Food Finder GA for Georgia. So it was foodfinderga.org um, because it wasn't even for all of Georgia at that point. The first version of the website um, was just for Gwinnett County in Georgia okay. because that was um, a huge undertaking with our limited knowledge and expertise and resources in and of itself. Um, but yeah, it was still Food Finder was. Uh, Pretty uh, GA was sort of how we made it less generic. Um, yeah, that's kind of funny because I was looking up uh, when I first looked up Food Finder. I found this other app 
for like Singapore restaurants. Yeah. And I was like, I don't think that's him, but maybe, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> Food Finder, if you, if you Google one word, Food Finder, then we should be the first result. Okay, cool, um, cool. Yeah, it's the uh, the space though. That's what gets you. Oh no! Yeah, people. The space bar. I didn't realize that'd be a common miss. Uh, it's all right. It's not people's fault. So, did you build this website yourself? Had you had experience doing this stuff, or did you hire somebody to make something real quick? Definitely the latter. Um, I had no idea how to go about building a website. Still don't. You're um, kidding me. That's so crazy. I just knew that this, in this case, a website would actually be you know the right solution that's needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started, well, well, like, I don't know. Um, so I started <laughs> finding people who did know. And so I just started researching companies that would be able to create the solution I had in mind. Um, there were software development shops, um, in and around Metro Atlanta. Um, and then to subsequently try and, um, get the funding or, you know, just get the, you know, estimated like five or $10,000 we, you know, ballparked that we would need it and then take it from there. That is really interesting to me because, I mean, how do you even approach, you know, these software developers? How do you how do you ask for your estimated 10K? I mean, that's a lot of money. And especially for something that has more of a social focus, you know, I'm sure investors kind of understand that they're probably not going to get any of that back. So did, did you just walk up to software developers in Metro Atlanta and be like, hey, I have this idea and I don't know how to build a website or anything. How, how, do, how was that? How did that work? Yeah, it was, uh, I don't even, I have fuzzy memory of those meetings. You just block it out. Yeah, just (laughs) repress it. Um, (laughs) Repression at its finest. But it was, you know, it was definitely a work in progress because I wouldn't even know, I didn't even really have the right way to describe it to someone who would have created it. So just really trying to do my best to to communicate what I had in mind and, you know, have them meet me in the middle and arrive at a, a, a common conclusion. Um, but again, leaning on that, cause obviously I was still, you know, 15, 16 year old kid as I was doing these, um, conversations and had to lean on, you know, this is, you know, tell them how I arrived at the idea tell them this is I'm trying to help kids who don't even know where their next meal is coming from, you know, in my community and in our community here in Atlanta and in Georgia, um, you know, can you help us out? So it was um, uh, probably a couple months worth of searching. And then we arrived at a company called Inopal um, in Atlanta that did the first version of the website. Um, and it was uh, out, held, had our software development team in Chennai, India. No so, way. So naturally. Um, <laughs> and it was a, uh, looking back on it, it's like you're always embarrassed of your first website. Um, but it got the job done. It took like five clicks to get to your food pantry, uh, information, but you could search around what school you went to, um, and find food pantries that way. And I was super proud of it and it got the job done for, you know, um, you know, a hundred food pantries in and around Gwinnett. It was, um, it went live and saw probably think had a. About thirty-five hundred people use it. With within what time frame? Within this first six months after wow. launch, um, so had had help from the school, from my school and school system for raising awareness of it, and it was, you know, super proud of it back in the day. So I actually want to tell you a story that kind of parallels yours, but I definitely didn't react the same way, and um, so. In the, in the ninth grade, I think maybe maybe I was a sophomore. So around 14, 15, the prime, you know, of, of puberty years, uh, I, I watched a, 
we, we were supposed to watch a documentary in school about um, concentrated animal feeding operations, mm-hmm. CAFOs, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and just kind of the, the, the documentary showed a lot of, you know, cruelty to animals because that's essentially what happens in, in these, you know, big factory run farms. And right after that documentary was over, I, I decided I don't think I'm ever going to eat meat again like ever and then about an hour later i got really hungry <laughs> it's like and a burger would be great right exactly now. like man yeah. chicken nuggets look kind of gross in the documentary but man i <laughs> look pretty good right now so what i'm trying to say with that the whole point of that tangent was i i you know i saw a documentary about something or a story about something that was truly heinous and and should not be happening in in a modern society if we do claim to live in one of those and the feeling i had initially was very strong it was like this is awful this never needs to happen ever again and i'm gonna put a stop to it and that feeling stuck with me for a few hours and then you know it kind of wanes and it you know it's kind of that marginal return thing You're, you're not gonna feel as passionate about something as time goes on but but what's what I like about you is that you you somehow sustained that to a point where you were able to build something that served as a solution to the problem that you found out about, you know, all those all those years ago. So what kept you going? What why didn't that feeling just, you know, wax and wane and kind of drift off into 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 nothingness? What was that? What what got you up every day and kept you going? Yeah, I think um, even though definitely, you know, the journey had its ups and downs. Um, there was actually a period, um, about a year or so after food finder launched for Gwinnett County that I was basically saying where it was either the decision to, uh, continue with it and go to, uh, to be a statewide database, um, for all of Georgia to help, uh, basically duplicate, um, what we did for Gwinnett County and every other county, you know, every, you know, all 160 counties in Georgia. So you needed to scale. Yes. Basically the decision of, you know, classic, you know, scale up or, you know, stay where where we're at. Um, And that was sort of, that was really the inflection point in my mind. And how, how old were you at this point? Still 16 going on 17. So Um, a massive decision, mm -hmm. massive decision. I can't even imagine making something like that at that age. So so what did you do? You know, for your question, it was, I really had a really wonderful, you know, the support of my parents uh, above all else. Um, They knew, you know, this was like, they said to me, you know, this is your project, but, you know, we'll always be here for you just for, um, you know, just to lean on. What I knew was that no matter how much, you know, food finder, did in Gwinnett County that's still one county out of 160 in Georgia and this problem this in this you know this ever you know omnipresent issue was not limited to Gwinnett County so when I had people like laughing in my face for the experts that I supposedly went to for advice like how can we do this and they said you you can't do this um that this time period of between 2014 and 2015 is still like five years later, uh, by far where I've had like the worst meetings for Food Finder that I've ever had. Um, because that's when I really ran into um, people who were, I guess, the incumbents, uh, like people who had been 
in this world for decades. And there was like this, this is a great, cute idea, but you can't, you can't, you can't do the statewide database. What was some of the backlash you were getting from, from these incumbents, like you said? Yeah, it was um, from, you know, sometimes the food bank, the food provider side of to where, you know, basically just for 10 second context, food pantries are the local programs out of churches and whatnot that you can actually go to uh, for food assistance nine times out of 10 in America. There's 60,000 or so food pantries in the country. No one knows for sure. And that's part of the problem. Um, <laughs> food banks, uh, not an interchangeable term. There are only 200 food banks in America. Uh, that are the regional distributors of most of the food that is ended up at food pantries. Um, so food okay. banks are organizations that are only about five or six to each state um, and oftentimes have budgets of 10 to $100 million. So these are much more refined, uh, larger scale operations. And the food banks are the ones who where they distribute, you know, they should be the ones to know where all the food pantries are because they're basically their suppliers. Um, and you know, that's still, that's how we've, that's how we ended up scaling up was working with the food banks, but it's still, um, it's gotten a lot better, but when food finder was just starting out, um, reactions from food banks were negative. Um, people were very defensive about their data. Um, it was like, sort of like who's asking type of uh, response when we asked for lists of their partner agencies, their food pantries that they provided to. What do you think they were afraid of? That is a very... Valid question that I had as well, and it's the very unfortunate um, aspect of the the attribute of the nonprofit world that is the political nature of it, and the it's getting a lot better, but it is very still a zero sum mentality of that there is a limited, especially if you are the provider, there is a limited number of not people to help. There is a limited number of funding sources that we're all vying for. And even though we're helping the same people, we need to compete with each other because that's just how it is. Cause it's, we gotta, we don't sell anything. We need money from other sources. So we need to vie for this grant or these number of donations or whatever, what have you. Um, and that's a really bad mentality because people and organizations who should work together to help the same people in the same area don't. Um, and that's a really big problem. So, you know, and it's also to where that's where, you know, the worst meeting I ever had was for the Health and Human Services Department that had a help hotline um, in my community in Gwinnett um, that basically, in their mind, did the same thing as Food Finder. Because obviously, you never want to duplicate efforts in for-profit or non-profit um, sectors. You always want to make sure you're solving a problem you know, that, that's something that someone isn't already doing. God, that was a bad meeting. What, what happened, if you don't mind me asking? It was just such a visceral reaction from the, um, from the women I was meeting with. It was me, my mom, and a, friend of, a family friend of ours who had nonprofit experience. And this was still when I was um, in high school. And was saying, well, you guys have this help hotline where people can call in and find help like food pantries, but they also help with like utilities and things like that. And it was just a visceral reaction, like, there is no point to this. There is, we already do what you're trying to do. I was in this office that looked like it was from the Great Depression. <laughs> and it's, it's really unfortunate because it wasn't really, it wasn't their fault. Yeah. Because it also was uh, something you see in social work and service, is that it's really easy to get jaded. Um, and really, it's just tough 
to do something, especially if you are really like on the front lines to do something for decades and try to help people and not see the needle move. And that's really difficult. So I think that's what they were, they, that they had, they were on that sort of spectrum. You know, it, it, it is what it is. You have good meetings, and you have bad ones, but it's just trying to, that was my sort of my first experience of trying to overcome, you know, the doubt that, that those types of experience had in my mind. And then that's when I leaned on the support of my, you know, my friends, my, my allies and my family um, to overcome that and to say, we've done it once, we can do it again. Doesn't matter the scale, we can find a way to do it responsibly and reliably. And uh, yeah, probably about six, six, 12 months after that meeting happened, we launched the statewide database at the end of 2015. That, that's incredible. And, and you just touched on this, but you know, I wanted to get a little bit more into how, how you recovered from that, because you're absolutely right. You can so easily get jaded in, in, in a space where when you've tried to help people for so long and you, you don't see the needle move, you can get bitter, right? Yeah. When you leaned on your peers, your friends and your family, you know, what was some of that doubt that was in your head and, and how did they help clear that doubt away yeah it was on one hand it was seeing how difficult just doing one county was because it took a month to get the entire county's database of food pantries it took a month we just brute forced it basically yeah so did you yeah. just go out and find them like we basically you... used the all the existing means that sort of let me down in the first place you know trying to you know google our way to freedom um <laughs> trying to find any sort of other if there were other aggregated lists out there it was just so hard so it was trying to before we had realized how we could change our processes to scale up it was trying i just did the math in my head it was like one county out of you know for, for a whole state it just that just seemed like an insurmountable obstacle but it was thinking about the positive results we had seen in gwinnett and when we really talked with teachers and a fantastic uh, conversation i had with the homeless coordinator from my county school system saying that this is a real problem. This is something that should exist, but doesn't. And we're really happy that you're doing this. Uh, those types, you know, that feedback was really what kept me going and kept me um, from letting that basically stop Food Finder in its tracks. Why? So, so eventually it also turned into an app. Why, why an app? Because do people that are food insecure even have access to a smartphone? Yes. Really? It is really surprising once you dig into the details because it's really, because smartphones didn't even exist before 2007. Um, they, they're let, they're barely, you know, 11, 12 years old. And it's so in our formative years for even for, you know, kids, you know, Gen Z, millennials, what have you. We're so used to smartphones being like really expensive or like a guy at my iPhone and you see the like the thousand dollar price tags for the new ones. And it's just that doesn't really tell you the story because it's also when a lot of people, you know, are surprised when they hear that Android by far has more smartphones in the world than Apple. Uh, I think two to one. Um, Android is just dominating um, in that sense, just for the proportions of numbers. Um, and the reason for that is because smartphones aren't a luxury anymore. They're a lifeline that is needed to live in this uh, modern world. So you have programs like the Lifeline Assistance Program out of the federal government that has smartphones that you can apply for and get them for free. 
you have really great smartphones like an Android uh, Samsung um, on five that I have for testing purposes cost $15 at a Kroger. Uh, and it looks like a great smart, it just it looks like a great full screen smartphone. And even the data, e- even from when Food Finder began, it's crazy. Something I, if you look in just the number of searches, right? The, the pure problem that Food, food Finder solves. Uh, in 2013, the year I had the idea, about 400,000 people searched for food pantries like I did, food pantries near me uh, in 2013 across the country. That number was 2.6 million last year in 2018. And that's a 544% increase. And 80% of that 2.6 million, basically 2.1 million, 2.1 of those million uh, searches were done from smartphones. So that's not... That's incredible. That's not computers. That's 80% of the people seeking help from food assistance on Google, trying to find it on Google, was done from a smart device. And that's just really the best example I can give of the changing nature of how people are seeking help if they are in tough circumstances at home. Really, the only you know question we have now is how do we answer? That just shatters a lot of uh, the, the kind of conceptions of, of you know these people that 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 you're trying to help and. And I'm glad that we, we talked about it for sure, because yeah, you're right. Smartphones are way more u- ubiquitous than, than we think. Not the you know, top of the line, what, what's the new iPhone? I stopped caring after Once it. they went to only letters, I stopped yeah, keeping I, track. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, so whatever X, yeah, Z, XRZ, XRZ AB, ABC. They're just gonna do the whole yeah. <laughs> alphabet at this point. Mm-hmm. But can you imagine that if they trademark the entire alphabet, we can't even use it anymore? Well, I mean, Ohio State tried to trademark the. So, no way. Yeah. How'd that work out for them? It's, uh, they, they got the, the pushback they deserve. Okay, good. Go blue. Okay. <laughs> Go blue. <laughs> um, that's actually a weirdly great transition into to my next question. So you decided to go to college in Michigan. Mm-hmm. What was the state of Food Finder when you graduated high school? And how did you plan to change it? as you as you moved on to college yeah so i went to the university of michigan i got to campus fall of 2015 we were a couple months away from completing all of georgia um, having about a thousand food pantries across the state what people could find and so it was well on its way i really my freshman year it was just um for all the momentum sort of at our back that we were about to finish georgia um i really you know took you know pumped the brakes a little bit i wanted to focus on my studies you know it was a big transition moving out of state and just wanted to keep the GPA up. Um, <laughs> so it, it was good. It was pretty, I don't blame myself for making that call. But after that, and after sophomore year, not, not like it's a bad thing, but Food Finder became more and more of uh, something I was working on continuously, either apart from my classes, with my classes, uh, for a lot of great instruction and skills I was able to take directly and apply them to Food Finder from my curriculum, or actually even to get funding and mentorship through the University of Michigan, through great programs at the business school and the School of Social Work um, and the really amazing entrepreneurial ecosystem they have there was something I had no idea. I literally did not know a thing about it when I got there. Uh, Not really the first thing I talk about on the tours, but it was just wonderful people and uh, programs I was able to um, utilize. How how did your experience there change the trajectory of Food Finder? I think... It really helped me prepare to be, to handle the responsibility uh, that would come with what we do. 
not to say like, oh, look how great our, look how amazing our work is, but it's more of the point where if I went, like if I just went to Food Finder like over college, like I didn't go to college, which is when I just jumped straight into it, like we probably would have failed a long time ago mm-hmm. uh, because I just did not have, not the hard, like not the hard like skills, like I didn't need to, didn't want to learn programming. I didn't need to, I didn't want to become a nonprofit like governance expert. I just needed to be able to learn and analyze and be able to communicate a lot better than I did. It's in college where, you know, I was a shy kid growing up, but I loved public speaking. Um, and that really was um, really, yeah, I really loved. And that really sort of emerged and really blossomed in college because there was awesome opportunities for like pitch competitions and really cool things I was able to even, you know, get res- get more resources for Food Finder. And it demanded, you know, rehearsal and how do I say, like, not what do I say, but how do I say it? What gets people excited about what we're doing? What gets people to take action? And that's super important. So oh, that's, yeah. that, that's something I'll always be grateful for. What, looking back uh, over the past five years, what have been some of the hardest parts of, of keeping food finder alive i think it's on one hand the data the data itself is an infinite game um we're about a year away from completing the first ever national database of every food pantry in america are you guys in all 50 states right? we are in all 50 states Crazy. we have fifty thousand food pantries and a database across all 50 wow. states so yeah can come a long way they're just smiling <laughs> yeah we're doing all right so we're about 85, 90% of the way there to finishing that first ever database. You know, this information changes. It's not static. If a food pantry or provider changes hours of operation, if they move down the street, if they shut down, uh, if a new place opens up, we need to have that reflected. Um, and that's a really tall task to do that on a nationwide scale. Uh, that's really tough. Um, because obviously, you know, pointing someone in the, in the wrong direction is arguably worse than doing nothing. Right. So how we're solving for that is that in a couple, about a week, we'll start development on a crowdsourcing portal for Food Finder that will allow any food pantry anywhere in America to go on Food Finder and either create a new listing from scratch themselves or to search for if, to see if they're in our database currently and to verify it and to make sure everything's accurate and completely uh, filled in. Um, so we're, we really want to return the agency of that information back to the food provider and ideally so we can even become the new platform by which they share their information. Uh, because obviously if you're a, a church or really a lot of them are faith-based, you know, the first thing you have, you have on your website, if you have a website, just a big caveat, um, is your faith services. And some, it's, I've gotten really good at digging. Uh, for like finding the right under like the food like in the ministries tab or like food pantry it can be really buried so making sure we can take that guesswork and uh, heavy lifting out of it Um, and also just funding the what we're working towards right now the gold standard for any nonprofit is to actually have an income stream of earned revenue that of something where you can actually provide a product or service that you can monetize, but also still fulfill your mission at the same time. So while we're never going to charge for our website or our app, it'll always be free and ad-free, um, which has been a deliberate decision since day one, where we just completed our first partnership that we earned revenue for, which was our partnership with the East Coast retailer Food Lion. And we basically embedded Food Finder onto their website, 
we created an API that would allow their shoppers to find food pantries near Food Lion stores uh, to allow them to either buy food from a Food Lion and then donate it or to volunteer or to get help for their family if they did need food assistance as part of their billion meal goal that they want to provide a billion meals in, in, uh, to people in need by 2025. And that was, it went great. It was super cool to see yeah. um, on their website now. And that, you know, that extended our runway by a significant amount. And that's really something we want to continue to replicate and help other, you know, foundations and big organizations that are very invested in the fight against hunger. We can actually help them facilitate people getting help. You know, I've done a handful of these interviews now and something that is either explicitly talked about or in, in our case, kind of we danced around the idea of is, is community. It always comes up and it makes sense why, you know, a lot of these, a lot of the people I talk to are very community based and community focused. And I wanted to know, what does community mean to you? I can't remember the last time someone asked me that. That's a great question. Food finders in every community, yet no community. Um, we've helped people in 5,000 different towns and cities across the U.S. now. We don't, we're not a brick and mortar operation. We're a really nebulous solution. It should all be people who, through some common link, uh, it can be something as simple as, you know, living in the same area or ideally, uh, you know, cultural tie um, of, you know, shared values that group them with other people, whether they like it or not. You have all the voices represented. You know the good and the bad of where you're at. And if the community is as strong as it should be, you know where you're at, and then you should be able to do something about it. A special thanks to Jack for his time and being a great guest. Thank you all so much for listening. Next week, I talk to Christy Porter, founder of Signify, a company that helps small nonprofits and for-profits with social missions get noticed and grow through effective marketing and communication strategies. This episode is a product of Audiographies, edited by Jacob Smolian. The music was created by Yolanda Weathers, Trey Leon, and Keenan Willis. This episode was sponsored by no one, but it could be sponsored by you. Please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash audiographies and consider becoming a patron so we can keep bringing you stories like this one. You'll get access to behind the scenes content like photos with our guests, unedited interviews, or bloopers like this one right here. Thank you all so much for listening. Next week, I talked to Christy Porter, founder of Signify. Ah, that was the wrong way to do that. What is that? Jesus Christ. We'll see you in the next one.